Master Hagun's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi, how bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Since we've been having some trouble with the Mixalar, um, uh, I've got my phone here so people can send me a text. The Sally or um, Robin, send me a text if, if um, this isn't, isn't working and we can, we can start the um, Mixalar again. Today is the 31st of August 2021 and uh, we're going to take t today in Tejo talk about uh, pain and suffering. So, uh, this this uh, topic comes from from a request um, for Tejo about, about this, about pain and its value from a Dharma point of view. Somebody um, who's in lockdown here in Auckland is, is just experiencing, you could say, the difficulty of having to uh, face their um, existential pain. Um, I think in many of us there is, a, is, is um, this, this sort of ground um, pain in us that we um, Often try and avoid through distractions. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like the background radiation um, that's that's still can be measured in in our universe that goes all the way way back to the Big Bang. It's the, the 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 our our background pain is a little bit like our like this like the evidence of. Um, our samsaric existence. And we do often in our everyday lives um, do all kinds of things to, to, as this person put it, get a break from ourselves. We have all, all the different activities that we ha happen in our normal day, um, going to work, interacting with people at work, meeting up with friends, 
visiting an art gallery or a concert or a theatre, um, or just hanging out at a cafe or restaurant and watching people go by. And at the moment, for those of us in Auckland, um, none of this really is possible, except perhaps for a daily, a daily walk, masked of course. So what is that that this that self that we want to get a break from? It's another way of of um, labeling it could be um, our endless blind passions. Dalai Lama the Dalai Lama talks about the unsubdued mind. For many of us, it can be. The inner critic, this is the, the form it often takes, or with lots of different ways of, of uh, designating it, could be the disparager, or the worrier, or the ruminator, the one who dwells in the past, or in the future, or in fantasies, which all of these, all of these um, add up to thoughts of one kind or another. Somebody commented that, that um, lockdown with its, with its severely reduced access to the, our normal kinds of stimuli is a bit like Sashin, uh, but at the same time isn't like it. In Sashin, we're sitting alone, but at the same time, we're sitting together with others in a highly structured way. We are um, in the quiet and stillness of Sashin, forced, you could say, or willingly allow ourselves to be, to confront ourself, the same, the same unsubdued mind that we're having to face more in, in lockdown. But in the Sashin, there's a lot of support, um, a lot of reminders about how to, to um, move from a preoccupation with ourselves to no self. Or as Dogen said, we, we can um, forget ourselves. move in that direction. At home the support for doing that is intermittent at best. But we can we can work at um, turning painful thoughts that we might be encounter encounter uh, suffering of different kinds, we can turn all of this into the path as, as is taught in the, in the Lojong teachings. Everything that arises can be turned into the path. And this is the, really the best response to uh, encountering this, this, this unruly mind unsubdued mind because um, there's no way to um, really ultimately there's no way that we can run from it. Rumi puts it this way no matter how fast you run your shadow more than keeps up sometimes it's in front only full overhead sun diminishes your shadow but that shadow has been serving you. What hurts you blesses you. Darkness is your candle. Your boundaries are your quest. Of course, we could, we could take his, his uh, image here of the full overhead sun as being our, our enlightenment. Clarity of seeing. seeing clearly the nature of the self that can be such a boon.
says, your boundaries are your quest. The Buddha uh, taught that one gets an inclination towards the spiritual life because of the existence of suffering. Dukupanisa sada, sada. From a Buddhist point of view, suffering is an is an essential aspect of the path. It's no accident that the first noble truth, or we could say the first ennobling truth, uh, is the the truth of suffering. Or more accurately, this first noble truth is the truth of unsatisfactoriness. All conditioned existence is unsatisfactory. This is this is where the Buddha started his quest. He started with with birth, sickness, old age, death. having to endure what we don't like, being separated from those we love, not getting what we want. And he also would list as, as inherently suffering the five skandhas, um, what the Tibetans called the perishing collection, which essentially are our body and mind, what we cling to. What we cling to and what we, especially what we also reject, what we push away, because this inevitably follows on from our experience of the unpleasant. We want to avoid it, just as we want to get more of the pleasant. Oscar Wilde wrote, um, for the secret of life is suffering. It is what is hidden behind everything. When we begin to live, what is sweet is so sweet to us, and what is bitter is so bitter, that we inevitably direct all our desires towards pleasure and seek merely a month or twain to feed on honeycomb. But for all our, year, our years to taste no other food, ignorant the while, that we may really be starving the soul. Let's read the end of that the end of that quote again. What is sweet is so sweet to us, and what is bitter is so bitter, that we inevitably direct all our desires towards pleasure and seek not merely a month or twain to feed on honeycomb, but for all our years to taste no other food, ignorant the while that we may really be starving the soul. To have the faith that in some sense, if we can turn it around, our suffering is food for the soul, nourishment. One way of understanding that is is that with with acute suffering, with deep suffering, we we are motivated to attend to things. And Shantideva, who who talks so much about suffering, said, "Without suffering, there's no renunciation, no letting go." Now we're going to uh, turn to some uh, pages of uh, some of the teachings of Zika Kwangchul Rinpoche. This is a little book which we've read from before called It's Up to You. And we're going to start off with, with um, 
chapter entitled Dancing with Habits and Fears, which fits in with this, this look at um, the suffering self. From, from a time farther back than any of us can remember, we've habitually taken refuge in samsara in order to preserve and cherish the self. Striving to maintain the identity of who we think we are, we find ourselves driven by habits and fears. The only way to find out who we really are is to learn to dance with them. Our habits and our fears are shaped by our, our attachments and aversions. Baudelaire um, describes this in a very, very um, powerful analogy. He says, this life is a hospital in which each sick man is possessed by a desire to change beds. One would prefer to suffer by the stove. Another believes he would recover if he sat by the window. I think I would be happier if I, in that place I happen not to be. And this question of moving house is the subject of a perpetual dialogue I have with my soul. And I guess what so many of us are experiencing at the moment is, is less opportunity to, to move house. And Conquerall Rinpoche suggests that instead of, of um, trying to, to somehow escape from these, these habits and fears, our painful thoughts, that we learn to dance with them. He says dancing means recognizing the raw energy of a situation and moving with it. Our usual approach is to size up situations to see if they threaten or serve us. What can I get or get rid of? By approaching everything with a sense of suspicion and struggle, we like to think we're in control of things. But in truth, our past karma is simply playing itself out. Instead of struggling with it, with it, however, we can choose to dance. Dancing requires us to be aware of the space and objects around us. We can't just move about any which way, and we must be alert and responsive to our partner. No one is totally in control. Learning to relax and dance reduces our fear and brings space and awareness to habitual responses. And this brings an overall sense of well-being. Uh, one way of understanding this, this um, awareness of space um, is to, to look at our thoughts and emotions Look, to look at them and see the space around them rather than to look from them or through them at the world where, where, where they colour our experience of the world. This is the, the seeing the thoughts and feelings as thoughts and feelings. So much more spacer, spacious. Well-being comes in part from acknowledging habits and learning to dance with them. Beyond that, it comes from knowing who we really are, beyond habits and fear, beyond the worldly and even spiritual sides of our lives altogether. There are all, they, these are all merely, ornament, merely ornaments to, of our life. Ornaments mean nothing without the person wearing them. We may identify with them, but they are not who we really are. If we overemphasize their importance, there may seem to be no life or gratification beyond them. Fixing on ornaments is not a true spiritual path. Getting fixated on 
thoughts and feelings. Ajahn Sumedho, the um, great Thai forest monk, he said, uh, with skillful, regular reflection, you learn that that which is aware of suffering is not suffering. That which is aware of suffering is not suffering. If we, if we start to realize this, then we won't so strongly identify with the thought, our thoughts and feelings. We'll, we'll, we won't take them so personally. A true path is about realizing our true nature. Even loving kindness and compassion, positive qualities to have on the spiritual path are mere adornments of our true nature. How can we meditate on our emptiness nature when we're so busy identifying with the various qualities of our mind? Holding on tight is an egotistical trap. Instead, we need to relax with emptiness, which is the open and insubstantial nature of everything. This is our true nature and true face. to see the, the insubstantiality of even positive qualities in ourselves. He continues, training in emptiness means relaxing and letting go. We experience emptiness directly by letting go of grasping and fixating on appearances as solid. These include outer appearances and inner appearances such as thoughts, emotions and dreams. Letting go begin, brings awareness of space. Then we can see the ornaments of space for what they are, expressions of emptiness. Emptiness is our great protection from fear. We don't need to be afraid of being challenged because there is nothing solid to challenge. How hard this is to learn, to, to drop our defenses, to drop our armor. We have no need to armor ourselves against destruction or cling to anything for security. Like a star, sky accommodating clouds, we accommodate whatever life brings, free from fear and bias. This is the ultimate mind training. Sickness, old age and death will come into all of our lives, but what can they actually destroy? They may destroy our physical well-being, but they can't destroy anything that is really me. This me is the experience of space itself. It is open, unobstructed, and free from fear. The incredible suffering of the human realm, the pain of birth, old age, sickness, and death, cannot destroy us. When we make ourselves comfortable with emptiness, we free ourselves from fear. To, to know for ourselves the unborn and undying Buddha nature. This is, this is what ultimately frees us. To see a flower in front of us and at the same time to see what sees the flower. And not two. By habituating ourselves to our natural state, we no longer put stock in things that, by their very nature, don't hold up. Without this understanding, life is difficult. The fears we had as toddlers stay with us throughout our adult lives. This is unnatural, unnatural but nowadays it's common. Traditionally, people had much more understanding and acceptance of life. Without this understanding and acceptance, adults are burdened with toddler's fears. 
there is always something that makes our heart clench with fear of losing our well-being. Uh, one time in a session, a very a powerful uh, image came to me of a small child um, curled up, clutching her knees with her head buried, buried in them. I think many of us have this, this small child inside us. We just want to flee from pain. How do we work with this, this vulnerable one, burdened with fears? How can we learn to, to hold her? And at the same time, hold that bigger picture, the space in which this image arises. aspect of ourselves. He says, without knowing how to dance with fears and habits, to take our place, stand profit, properly, make our moves, we're unable to work with them. And we have to be able to work with them because fears and habits always come back. Fears and habits always come back. We could re relate this to the second of our vows. Endless blind passions. Our passions are endless. He goes on. When we resist the nature of impermanence, mind is steeped in anxiety and fear. Our habitual tendencies persist in creating a semblance of security. We try to hold on to daydreams and fantasy. We try to keep fears at bay. We may even try to live a dharmic life. This is like rearranging the furniture while our house is on fire. Without a sense of our basic nature, we're trapped in this dynamic of insecurity. This is why um, just sitting in order to um, experience a peaceful mind is not enough. It's, it's a necessary part of the practice, but this going on to um, see into our basic nature, this, this is what can really liberate us. Without this understanding, then we, we, we don't emerge completely from our insecurity. We may, we may allay it temporarily with, with deep states of mind, but we don't uh, resolve it, it. Most fears arise from uncertainty. Uh, we've had a lot of that lately. Of course, it's not very exciting to know everything in advance. It's like going to a restaurant where we've already tasted everything on the menu. But when we're stuck in fear, we can't put one foot in front of the other unless we know what lies ahead. Our life doesn't even feel like our own life. It's so controlled by fear. If we would just let this uncertainty be, we could connect with its lively quality. Life is better when we let things be. We don't have to hole up in the familiar. We can encounter life on the level of direct experience, whatever that might be. If we don't struggle with our experience, we won't have to feel doomed or at its mercy. And we needn't feel stuck in having to achieve a peaceful mind or any other state of mind. We can simply be present. This is what we're training ourselves in, in, in our practice. 
to be simple and present. To embrace uncertainty. As we witness our lives naturally unfolding in space, we realize that we ourselves are space, and like a spacious garden adorned with many blossoms, all of our experiences, including habits and fears, become ornaments of this space. The basic space of unobstructed awareness is the richest we talk about from the beginning to the end of the practice of the path. It is because our nature is like space that we can function in space at all. Without space, there would be no movement and no change. But thanks to space, everything is possible. He's using space here uh, to talk about um, insubstantiality, our emptiness of abiding form. next section is called the momentum of delusion. Given that our nature is completely unobstructed, what causes the mind to struggle and spin, and what fuels its momentum? Sentient beings are said to spin in the momentum of samsara's delusion. Delusion, or, or trulpa in Tibetan, is simply seeing what is not really there. The root of this misperception is ignorance. From this ongoing misinterpretation, amazingly and painfully enough, arises a thoroughly functional world supported by the law of cause and effect. Give some examples of, of our ways that we ongoingly misinterpret our experience. Um, Someone says something and we take it as an attack on us personally. And then we react in a, in a defensive, perhaps an aggressive way. And then this affects the response of the other person. They may misinterpret our... Um, unease um, is hostility or not liking them and so there's a kind of a chain reaction of um, mistakes one kicking off the next or we can we can believe our self-judgments our negative self-judgments and then um, act out of that narrow place so much so that, that uh, we experience our world as very constricted and, and feel ourselves to be stuck. He says, the engine that drives this delusion is conceptual mind with all of its thoughts and beliefs. There is a subtle belief in the solid self that must be protected and cherished, and there are gross thoughts about good and bad, likes and dislikes, friends and foes, possibilities and impossibilities. Sometimes we engage in conceptual mind intentionally, and sometimes not, but mind engages itself all the time. This dualistic mind he's talking about here. There are no breaks in the, its process of categorizing experience based on our preferences and beliefs. 
Buddha said, your, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. Whether we're aware of it or not, we're caught in this unbridled momentum most of the time. Without our categories, we can't navigate our way in the world, and we certainly can't know who we are without our preferences and opinions. But in truth, these concepts only ignite our emotions and undermine any chance we have for peace. Concepts and beliefs are like the wax of a candle. Fueled by the wax, emotions are like the flames that keep the momentum of delusion alive. It's a, another powerful image. Our thoughts is the fuel that, that um, feed the, the emotions, the flames, the, uh, the heat of emotion. Thoughts arise continually, moment to moment. They may not be even connected. If we fixate on a thought, even a benevolent thought can become our whole world and change the course of our life. This is particularly true if we have the karmic seeds or propensity to go in a particular direction. It's not so much the, the moment to moment arising of thoughts that is a problem, but um, the way in which we can fixate on our thoughts. This is Zen saying, do not be concerned with wandering thoughts arising. Be concerned with not being aware of them. In other words, being identified with them. Because I want to say, it is really important to be clear about our beliefs. How do they influence our life? And do they really fulfill our intention for peace and happiness? Having strong beliefs, political, social, religious, or even altruistic beliefs, is not necessarily a problem. But when they're mixed with self-importance, we become emotionally invested in our beliefs. This leads to emotional reactions. When self-importance gets the better of us, we become self-righteous and lose the dignity of our intelligence. We also so often lose our flexibility of thinking. We become rigid and, and uh, stuck. So it, it's so helpful to, in our, in our Zazen to learn to um, sort of step back to get perspective on our views, to see our views as views when they arise, rather than seeing the world through them. How important are these views of ours? Does it help us to hold them so tightly as if they had some intrinsic existence? Are we being disloyal to our beliefs when we have an open mind? When you bring these subtle beliefs and emotions into awareness through self-reflection, it will be clear what you have to work on. In the West, it is often said that people are driven by sex, money and power. Now you might think, I'm not caught up in such things. My motivation is different. I don't really have anything to work on. But look again and you might see things differently. I once dreamed that someone accused me of being motivated by sex, power and money. When I woke up, I thought, that's ridiculous. I've been working on myself for too long to possibly be caught up in such things. That person is way off base. But when I looked at this possibility honestly, I saw it was true. Not in an obvious Hollywood way, but in my own psychological way. I could see in myself a deep longing to unite with another, which is a way of being caught up in sex. 
And although I've tried to avoid all the ordinary ways of getting caught up in power, on a subtle level I long for the power to influence people and make an impact on them. This subtle attachment to power is where all gross power craziness comes from. And when it came to money, I saw my passion for the freedom that money can buy, freedom to travel, to do retreats, to benefit others. That subtle attachment was there, even with positive intentions. By examining our thoughts and beliefs, we uncover our deeper attachments. When they're brought to light, these concepts no longer have power over us. Maybe it, it all comes down to seeing through the conceptual mind and not fusing with thoughts and concepts as they arise. Conceptual mind is only a problem if it's grounded in self-importance and attachment. Thoughts, in and of themselves, are illusory, fleeting, and impossible to pin down. They are neutral in the sense that they can either help or hinder us. If we understand their nature, we can use them to our advantage on the path. We can turn them into the path. Conceptual mind has tremendous power to work against the momentum of delusion and bring us closer to the truth. The study and contemplation of the Dharma, for example, can clear away ignorance. The thought of benefiting others can instantly clear away the suffering of self-importance. Used in this way, conceptual mind is a powerful, if illusory, force for counteracting the momentum of delusion. Ultimately, however, the powerful way to counteract delusion is to see through conceptual mind itself. thought of benefiting others can instantly clear away the suffering of self-importance. There's so much in that statement. So just to, to um, wrap up here, um, how to work with painful thoughts that we can't avoid. Um, just to, to um, recap a little, rather than resisting these things, but to accept them and hold them. remaining aware that the one who is who is aware of the thoughts is bigger than the suffering itself. We hold the thoughts the way we might, might hold a crying child. Recognizing that child's pain in that moment, but also at the same time recognizing how how it will change. Ten minutes later the child may be laughing. Taking ourselves lightly is another helpful strategy. Relaxing the mind as much as we can. Keeping up our sitting will help us to do this at other times in the day. If we think of, of the way that we work with physical pain in Sishin, learning to soften around it and, and embrace it rather than tensing up and rejecting it, to work in the same way with psychological pain or emotional pain, Just getting a message that uh, we may be off air.
I'll just try starting again. Hopefully this will help. We're nearly there. Just to 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 come back to this this um, transforming up our our painful thoughts into the path. We can we can see this stuff as a shadow that never leaves us, as Rumi said, but it can also become what connects us with others. We, if we see suffering as the Buddha saw suffering, then it becomes bigger than us. It's not just our own personal pain, but a response to samsaric existence. Krishnamurti said, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Phila McCurti talked about being sick because sentient beings are sick. Here's what um, Jigmei Kyense Rinpoche said about this. He said, the underlying sense of uneasiness that we have now is actually a good thing. It is the expression of our sensitivity. Those who go through life without feeling ill at ease are unconscious. The uneasy feeling caused by our awareness holds tremendous potential for transformation. Or here's how Master Hakuin put it. Buddhas are dissatisfied. Zen masters are dissatisfied. Whatever comes up in heaven or hell is all dissatisfaction. The great guides of humanity and the angels vow to settle the grievances of all living things. If we can, if we can, can connect with our suffering at the deepest level, then we 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 find our fellow feeling. We find compassion. Then everything is, is shifts. We we turn. Our, our energies towards service of something greater than us. I think here of um, something I heard on a on a, a wonderful documentary called "A Force More Powerful." It's about the civil rights movement and the incredible courage of, of the people in that movement. And um, these protesters. Uh, at lunch counters in Nashville in 1960 really were, were um, suffered many assaults um, but in the end they prevailed assaults and violence and rough treatment and they um, in this documentary one of them says our willingness to suffer was more powerful than any weapon they had Finish with one more, a few more words from um, our text. The willingness to not turn away from our anguish is where we reflect on the suffering of samsara, and it is the bodhisattva path. This path is possible only because we have seen that the true nature of suffering is egoless or empty. Not turning away from suffering doesn't mean toughing it out. It means that Having seen the true nature of suffering, we have the courage to encounter suffering joyfully and to respond to it. We'll stop here 
and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain. Apologies, everybody, for the continued problems with Mixler. Um, we will have a catch-up now on on Zoom. Uh, people want to join us there, and um, we can probably get get some feedback on on what went on this evening. So, th thank you all. Shutting down now and meeting up on Zoom. <laughs>